Let's pray. Father, your love far exceeds what little we know of it. And Lord, we praise you this morning that we can sing of your great love and and know the truth that there is no way for us to capture in a song the depth and breadth and height of your love. But Lord, we see it most perfectly displayed in the giving of your Son, Jesus, for us. And our prayer this morning, Lord, is that as we look at this passage, and that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here, and Lord, that we would uh, see with clarity your triune work to save sinners like us. And Lord, would you be exalted as we submit ourselves underneath your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, turn in your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, where we'll continue our study we began a few weeks ago, and this morning we'll be looking at the baptism of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus. The question before us is this. Of all that Jesus said and did on earth, why would Mark and the other evangelists include the event of Jesus' baptism? Why do we have this specific event frozen in time for us in Scripture to analyze again and again? And to put it another way, what is the significance of of Jesus' baptism. Well, unfortunately, Mark doesn't say, look, let me give you the the three significant points about Jesus' baptism. Actually, he just sort of races right through it, which, you remember, is characteristic of Mark's style. He's a sort of all-business kind of writer. Uh, He gets to the point. Sometimes he gives a lot of detail, but most of the time he's just moving right along And the account here of Jesus' baptism is brief. He simply gives the facts and then moves on to the next scene. But what I want to do this morning is slow down a bit and look to see what we need to see from this monumental event in the life of Jesus. So I invite you to stand with me to Mark 1, and we'll read verse 1 all the way to verse 11. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, And all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, In you, I am well pleased. You may be seated. Well, I want to argue that the baptism of Jesus verifies Jesus' identity and displays the redemptive activity of the triune God. That's my goal this morning, is to show you that the baptism of Jesus verifies His identity all the while putting on display the redemptive work of the triune God. 
And I want to make three observations to that end. First, we will see that the baptism of Jesus displays the resolve of the Son. It's verse 9. Then we'll see that the baptism of Jesus displays the empowerment of the Spirit. It's verse 10. And third, we'll see that Jesus' baptism puts on full display the affirmation of the Father. It's verse 11. So first, the baptism of Jesus displays the resolve of Jesus, the Son. Look at verse 9. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now in those days refers to the time period of John the Baptist's wilderness ministry that's captured in verses 2 to 8. And you'll remember that John had been called by God, appointed specifically as the messenger of the Messiah. And his job was to go ahead of Jesus and to prepare the way for Jesus to come. He was to clear the road, as it were. And he did this primarily by preaching the word. He was perhaps the most powerful preacher to have ever walked the earth. In fact, Jesus said, Of those born of women, that is to say, of all men, John the Baptist was the greatest. There was no one greater than him. And his ministry consisted of preaching the word, exalting Christ, and getting out of the way. And we said that that summarizes the Christian life in a word. Preach the word, exalt Christ, and get out of the way. And that's what John did. And soon, his ministry was swallowed up by the ministry of Christ. And although John was preaching in the middle of nowhere, in the Judean wilderness, throngs of people were coming to him because God had appointed him. And the whole Judean countryside was coming. Actually, the text says the whole country of Judea was coming out to him in the middle of nowhere to hear him preach And then to be baptized, confessing their sin, repenting, and being baptized by John in the Jordan River. That's the scene. And then, all of a sudden, in an unexpected turn, Jesus shows up. The one Mark has identified as the Messiah, the Son of God. In verse 1, this one leaves Nazareth, his hometown, and comes to John the Baptist To be baptized. That Jesus is from Nazareth seems to be the only real biographical detail that Mark is concerned with. Nazareth was a fairly unimpressive town. About 15,000 people. And it had a bad reputation. You'll remember Nathaniel's statement, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, It's not mentioned in the Old Testament, Nazareth specifically. It was, though, part of the region of Zebulun in the land of Galilee, right between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean Ocean. And 700 years prior to this date, when Jesus appeared to be baptized by John the Baptist, another writer, Isaiah, had foretold that the Messiah himself would come from this little region in Zebulun. It's Isaiah 9.1. He wrote this, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He brought them into contempt mainly because uh, they would have been the first two nations, the northernmost nations to be carried away into captivity. He brought them into contempt. People scowled at them. But in the latter time, 700 years later, he would make the, glo- the way glorious, the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And this is where Jesus comes from. Jesus of Nazareth leaves his hometown to come to John to be baptized. It's a humble, contemptible town. And Jesus set out on a 90-mile walk. That sound pleasant? A 90-mile walk to the north side of the Dead Sea, right where the Jordan River meets into the Dead Sea. That's where John was baptizing. 
It's incidentally the same place where the Israelites likely would have crossed the Jordan to go into Canaan and where Elijah himself would have been ascended uh, into heaven. But Jesus at this point is around 30 years old. 30 years old, he leaves Nazareth, travels by himself, something like 90 miles on foot. No family members come with him. No friends. At this point, he has no disciples. And he comes all that way specifically to be baptized by John the Baptist. Matthew makes it clear that that is the exact reason he came, was to receive this baptism from John the Baptist. So in a word, Jesus didn't stumble into this crowd of people and say, huh, I I could get baptized too. No, he set out on a mission. And his mission was to be baptized by John. As always, Jesus moved with thought and deliberation. He knew exactly what he was doing. Now the question that the church has asked historically, and even John the Baptist himself asked, was why would Jesus need to receive this baptism? Right? Especially, I mean, what was John's baptism? It was a baptism of repentance and confession. Well, John the Baptist had the same thought, and in Matthew 3 we read that when Jesus comes to John the Baptist, he opposes him. He says, The text says he tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you. You don't need me to baptize you. The language is actually emphatic and suggests that John the Baptist is is legitimately confused as to what is happening. It doesn't make any sense. He knew that Jesus was there. He knew who Jesus was, and he knew for him it was unthinkable that Jesus would need to receive what he had to offer. In fact, he was right in one sense. The Bible teaches that Jesus was entirely without sin. The life he lived, he lived perfectly. It's amazing. Those closest to Jesus testified most strongly of his sinlessness. I, I doubt that would be true in our scenario. Um, those closest to us know us best. Peter, whose apostolic account the Gospel of Mark is most likely based on, he said this, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. He declared him to be unblemished and spotless, who committed no sin and was perfectly just. John the Apostle wrote that in Jesus there is no sin. 1 John 3, 5. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So this is Jesus, right? Sinless, spotless, unblemished, holy, coming to John to be baptized. And naturally John says, no, no, no. You don't need what I have to offer. But Jesus' response to him clarifies what's going on. This is Matthew 3, uh, verses 15 to 17. Jesus responded this way. He said, Permit it at this time. Let, Let it happen. Allow me to be baptized here. For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. Jesus' answer is certainly insightful. He says, permit it at this time, for in this way, in this way, being baptized, this is the way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now, it's interesting. He he says, us. It's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That is, it's fitting for John and Jesus to follow through with this baptism for them to conform to the will of God. What Jesus means here is that John must baptize Jesus 
in keeping with God's call on him to baptize those who came to him. That's why John was sent, to baptize. That's God's will for John. And Jesus must also be baptized in keeping with the Father's will for him. Regardless of what everyone observing might have thought, oh, here's another sinner receiving John's baptism. Jesus had a mission, and the Father had called him to receive this baptism. And both men had to obey in order to keep with righteousness. The Son must follow through because it's the Father's will. Right? And that's what righteousness is. Right? It's conformity to the Father's will. Conformity to God's word, to his law. And God's will at this moment was that Jesus would be baptized in order to fulfill the righteous requirement he had placed on the Messiah. It also, and maybe more clearly, identified Jesus with sinners. This is a fulfillment of righteousness, but simultaneously, here is Jesus in a sea of people, and he comes to be baptized with them. Son of God in flesh, numbered with transgressors. That's Isaiah 53, 12, right? Identifying himself with sinners in solidarity with them. And the moment of Jesus' baptism marked his identification with those whose sins he would eventually bear. And at the same time, it was a necessary part of the righteous life that Jesus lived that would eventually be imparted to every Christian who trusts in him by faith. He said it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness. It was not enough, notice this, it's not enough for Jesus merely to die for sinners and pay the penalty, the debt you owe for your sin. Did you know that? That's not enough. That would simply bring you to a a sort of morally neutral standing. It's not enough to be morally neutral. You must have a positive standing in righteousness before God. We need that. And we can't acquire it. This is the book of Romans over and over again. And Jesus' life of perfect obedience is what obtained for us the righteousness that we need. So when Jesus says, it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness, what he's doing for you and me is he's obeying the Father's will and he's securing the righteousness that will someday be imparted to you. On the cross, Jesus takes your sin and by faith you receive his righteousness. You can never be good enough to earn heaven. That's why Jesus came to earn it for you. This is Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Right? He knew no sin. But he was made to be sin. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So fundamentally then, Jesus' baptism was about his identification with sinners and the securing of a righteousness for us. But there's another element in this baptism that I want you to see. Jesus' baptism was also a symbol, a picture of his coming death and resurrection. There are only two other references to baptism in the Gospel of Mark, or in the Gospels, period, that Jesus makes. One of them is actually not in the Gospel of Mark, it's in the Gospel of Luke, Luke 12, where Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, Luke 12, verse 50, and he told his disciples this, I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. I have a baptism to undergo. The other time he references baptism is when James and John come to him and they want the best place in the kingdom of the Messiah. Remember, and he looks at them and he says, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And what's he talking about? 
He's talking about his crucifixion, his death for sinners. And throughout the Gospels, we see time and again that Jesus is resolved to take this baptism for you over and over and over again. He must go here. He must do this because it's necessary for him to receive this baptism. And his departure then, back in Mark 1, from Nazareth to be baptized by John was a symbol of the death that he would ultimately die for sinners. The thing that led him that, on that 90-mile walk was his ultimate aim of dying the death that sinners deserve. The symbol of his crucifixion by baptism came at the beginning of his ministry. Right, This is the first thing we see in his ministry. The New Testament picks up on his baptism as the initial outworking of his ministry to sinners. And it concludes with the substance of his baptism, his death, burial, and resurrection. And we see this, we see that Jesus didn't accidentally take up the cross. No, he resolved to bear the shame, scoffing, rude, and in our place, condemned he stood. That was his desire, that was his aim. And his baptism openly declared his willingness, his resolve to identify with sinners like you and me and to take upon himself, as John 1.29 says, the sin of the world and to give his life as a ransom for many. Behold, in this baptism, see the resolve of Jesus to give his life for you. He was no reluctant Savior, and He is no reluctant Savior today. He was resolved to accomplish the work to redeem you. And He still is today. But we also see in this a second thing. We see the resolve of the Son, but we also see the baptism of Jesus displays the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We see the resolve of the Son, but we also see there's a second person involved in this work. And it's the Spirit of God. Look at verse 10. Immediately coming up out of the water. right? He was submerged under the water. He comes up out of the water. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. And the Spirit, like a dove, descending upon him. This is an incredible scene, and the language is powerful. The words that are used here are used only in Mark. Immediately as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening. Literally, this word is it's schizo. It's where we get our word schism. Right? The, the word is graphic, used only here, and it speaks of the heavens being split apart are being torn open by force. Literally, it means to split or to cleave. It's the word used to, to describe the splitting of wood uh, or the tearing of a garment. The same word is actually used in Mark 15, the second time it's used, second and only time in Mark. It's used to describe the tearing of the veil in the temple. And this is what we see. The heavens split open and out of heaven, out of the divide, descends the third person of the Trinity. God, the Holy Spirit, descending on the Son. It's amazing. And the text says that the Spirit descended out of this divide like or as a dove. Now a lot has been said about the symbolism here. Is it a form of a dove? Is it just the image of a dove? Is it just the illusion of a dove? Is it, there are 13 different options, right? Um, but I think the focus is not that the Spirit descended in the form of a dove and all the symbolism that might be there. The focus is actually that the Spirit descends in the manner of a dove. Right? That's the emphasis. Uh, it, it's, a, it's the manner of that the Spirit descends. The Spirit descends 
in the way or the manner in which a dove descends from the sky. That is, gracefully and elegantly. And Luke adds that his descent was in bodily form, like a dove. He doesn't say that the Spirit was a dove. He's saying that the Spirit was in... Now, this is, un, this is not extremely clear, and I think they leave it this way, so we're, we're sort of, we don't lay hold of doves as some sort of sacred creature. Um, he says, the Spirit descended in bodily form as a dove. So the idea is that in the Spirit's descent is in some kind of physical, bodily form, shape, descending gracefully, elegantly, like a dove, and resting on the sun. Is that clear enough? Good. Now, why is this significant? Well, I think there's a twofold significance here that we need to see. First, the Spirit's descent on the sun is a matter of identification. All right, John the Baptist had been told, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Right? That will be the Messiah, the, the Son of God. And John said, I myself, John 1, 33-34, I myself have seen and have testified that this, Jesus of Nazareth, is the Son of God. How do I know that? Because I saw the Spirit descend on Him as a dove. Thus, John seeing Jesus called out, seeing the, seeing the Spirit descend on Him, seeing Jesus pass by, calls out and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's Him. He's the one. So at the Spirit's descent and at Jesus' baptism, John the Baptist is 100% convinced that man, my cousin, I'm six months older than him, that one is the Messiah. And this agrees perfectly with all the prior revelation about who the Messiah would be. Uh, listen to, the, to Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11, 1-2 points out that the Messiah will be in the line of David but listen to how the verse goes. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's a little bit complicated. What he means, it's, it's as if the tree of David, right, is cut down at the exile. It's over, right? Israel's done. God is done with his people. But no, he's not. A shoot will spring from the stem or the stump of Jesse. That's David's dad. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And notice this, the Spirit of Yahweh will rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Spirit of Yahweh will rest on Him. You will know who this branch is, this shoot from the stump of David, when you see the Spirit of God resting on Him. So, the descent of the Spirit affirmed all the prior revelation and identified Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and the Son of David, the promised Messianic King. Right? So the descent affirms, it's a matter of affirmation or identification. And then secondly, it's a matter of empowerment. The Spirit's descent on the Son is a matter of empowerment. Listen to Isaiah 61. You might turn there if you want. Isaiah 61. Maybe turn there because it will be good to see it in the text itself. Isaiah 61. Here, Isaiah identifies the future Messiah or the servant of the Lord as one who's anointed by the Lord or Yahweh to do the work of the Messiah. It's a prophetic looking forward. Um, you know, at Jesus' baptism, this is some 700 years down the road. <clears throat> Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. It's a common theme. It's repeated time and time again. Because the Lord has anointed me. The word Messiah 
means anointed one. Right? The Spirit has descended and anointed me. And notice why. To bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance from our God. To comfort. And he goes on. The Spirit's empowerment on the Messiah or on the servant of the Lord here is to bring good news. Is to do the work that God had put upon him to do. So, the Spirit's resting on the servant of Yahweh is a matter of empowerment for messianic ministry. And the descent of the Spirit on Jesus is the exact same thing. The Spirit descended from heaven to empower the Messiah to do the work the Father had called Him to do. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. To empower His people to do His will. Right? Peter picks up on this in the book of Acts. Acts 10, verse 37, he says this, You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee. All right, Nazareth is in Galilee. After the baptism which John proclaimed. Okay, it's connected to the baptism of Jesus. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went about then, doing good and healing, right? He was anointed with power, and he went about doing good and healing. Now you may ask, rightly so I think, if Jesus is God, why did he need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? Have you thought about that? Well, in one sense, it's true that Jesus needed nothing. Jesus is God, fully God in every way. And as he walked on this globe, it's an amazing thought, he walked on this globe, he lacked nothing. He had everything he needed as God. However, when he became man, he didn't lose his deity, but he gained humanity. He took on flesh, and he didn't cease, though, to be God. So as man, he needs strength. As man, he grew hungry. He grew tired. And as man, he needed the empowerment and help of the Holy Spirit. As God, he needed nothing, but as human, he needed the anointing of the Spirit of God to undergo the task, the gruesome task the Father had given him. And so the Spirit of God came upon Jesus in his humanness and empowered him to cast out demons. And if you look at the Gospels, you see that Jesus is doing these works because the Spirit is upon him and empowering him. The Spirit came upon him to do miracles, to work signs and wonders, and to even preach. R.C. Sproul put it this way. The Spirit anointed the human nature of Jesus. We tend to think that Jesus performed his miracles in his divine nature. Right? He's God. Of course he can do all these things. Actually, Jesus performed them in his human nature through the power of the Holy Spirit given to him at his baptism. It was there that God empowered Jesus to fulfill the mission he had been given. Isn't that amazing? So what do we see from the Spirit's descent on the Son? Well, we see that the Spirit's procession from the Father onto the Son, not only identifies Jesus as the promised Davidic king and servant of Yahweh, but the Spirit comes to him to empower Jesus to carry out the wonderful work of your redemption. The Son, then, is totally resolved and committed to die for you. And the Spirit is equally 
committed to strengthen the Son to accomplish the work. It's amazing, isn't it? But it actually gets better. Look at verse 11. And a voice came out of the heavens. You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. Out of the same chasm in heaven from where the Spirit had descended, a voice comes. The voice of the Father. Affirming and delighting in the Son. The statement is essentially a combination of two Old Testament passages. Psalm 2-7 and Isaiah 42-1. You're familiar with Psalm 2. We've read it frequently over the past couple of years. <clears throat> the more that uh, we've recognized our government is in uh, rebellion against the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. Psalm 2 begins with a picture of the nations in rage against God. And God looks upon them and he stresses out at their power and might to overthrow him. No. He looks at them and he laughs. Right? That's what he does. It's utterly, the nations are utterly impotent to affect anything in God's plan. They can't do anything against God's design. And so God looks at them and he laughs. And then he says in verse 6, As for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell, verse 7, of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them, with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware, like pottery. They seem so strong, but the true king, it will be like dropping a, a glass on concrete. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the sun capital S, that he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's the psalm. The psalm is speaking about David, but it's messianic and pointing to David's greater son, the Messiah. And actually it reaches further back into 1 Chronicles where David is promised that he's going to have a descendant On the throne, for how long? Forever. He shall build for me a house, and I will establish his throne forever. And notice this. 1 Chronicles 17, 10-14. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And I will not take my loving kindness away from him, but I will settle him in my house and in my kingdom forever. And his throne shall be established forever. In some mysterious way, the Messiah would be the son of David and the son of God. And the allusion in this passage to Psalm 2 identifies this figure who came 90 miles from Nazareth to be baptized as the one who would fill David's throne and be the promised Messiah, the anointed one. But we need to listen to this text carefully and we need to to note that at this moment, it's very important, at the moment of Jesus' baptism is not when Jesus becomes the Son. Jesus doesn't become the Messiah at His baptism or the Son. Jesus is being recognized for who He is at his baptism. At his birth, Jesus added to his divine nature, human nature. He took on, he added to his divinity, humanity. The incarnation, Jesus' birth, at this point, the eternal Son of God is adding human nature. Do you see I'm being repetitive here? 
He's adding, he's taking on something he wasn't before, human. And he takes that on himself. And it's as human that Jesus the Son would be able to accomplish the work of redemption for those to whom he would identify. Namely, other humans like you and me. Jesus did not take on an angelic nature or an animal nature or any other nature when he became man. He took on humanity with you and me so that at this moment, what the Father is doing is he's looking at the Son and saying, this is not an ordinary man. Don't mistake his compassion and kindness and solidarity with you sinners as a sign that he's just like you. He is not like you. This is my son. The eternally begotten son. And he is like me in nature. Now, the other allusion is uh, from this text is Isaiah 42. And that points to another aspect of the son's identity. So we've seen that Jesus is in his baptism. The father says, this is my son which points to the fact that Jesus is actually God and that He is the messianic, uh, the, the fulfillment of all messianic promises. And then in Isaiah 42, we see another aspect of Jesus' identity. And we see that Jesus is the servant of Yahweh. He's the servant. In the book of Isaiah, there are four sections. Four sections called the servant songs. And these identify the nature of, and the character of God's promised Messiah. What he would be like, what he would do, what he would accomplish. Isaiah 42 is the first of these servant songs, and it begins this way. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. You see that? My servant, my chosen one, the one in whom my soul delights. And the Spirit is upon him. All of these things are happening at Jesus' baptism. It's amazing. According to Isaiah, the coming servant would be anointed by the Spirit, and he would be delighted in, or he would be pleasing to the Father. And that's what the phrase, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased, means. Or in you I delight. Now, why is the father delighted in the son in this moment? Of all the things the father could say to the son in this moment, he says, this is my beloved son, in you I am delighted, or well pleased. Well, certainly he's delighted in the Son because the two have had mutual fellowship and delight in one another from all eternity past. Right? Certainly that's true. John 17 affirms that the Father and the Son have subsisted together in perfect unity and fellowship from eternity past. Perfect satisfaction, perfect pleasure, perfect joy. But I think there's another aspect that the Father is emphasizing here. The Father's delight in the Son has to do with this statement in Isaiah 42 and, and following through all the way to Isaiah 53. In the servant songs, the, the, the Father, Yahweh, takes particular delight in this special servant. Why? Because the servant is a servant. And what does good servants do? The will of their master, Right? And the servant is pleasing to the, the Father because he's accomplishing the Father's will. And we see this as we go through these servant songs. The second song is Isaiah 49. It speaks of the servant's work in the world and his success. Having been empowered by the Spirit, this is what he's going to accomplish. The third servant song is Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11. And this contrasts the purity of this servant with the sinfulness of Israel. And then finally, we come to the climactic servant song. The last one, the pinnacle, 
to Isaiah 53. Right? You're familiar with this song, right? This is the song that describes the suffering and triumph of the servant of Yahweh. And I just want to point out a few features of this <clears throat> wonderful chapter of Scripture. The song begins, Isaiah 53, with a promise that the servant will be exalted but then immediately turns to a description of the abuse that the servant, this pure, righteous, God-pleasing servant, turns to the abuse that he will receive. He'll be disfigured and marred beyond any human likeness. Verse 3 says that he'll be despised and forsaken by men. He'll be brutally punished. The people will look at him and say, he must be cursed by God. But verse 5 makes it clear why the servant endures such hostility. Verse 5, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, We are healed. The servant suffers because of our transgressions, our sin. Verse 7 predicts that the Messiah, the servant, will be silent before his accusers. Although he has all authority and power to wipe away all of these um, weak nations and people that are crucifying him, he has the authority and power to do that. He won't. He will be like a lamb led to the slaughter. Verse 9 declares that although the servant of the Lord has been so mistreated, he's actually perfectly innocent. And then verse 10 tells us why he dies. And this has direct relevance to the Father's statement at at Jesus' baptism. Verse 10, But the Lord was pleased to crush him. He was pleased to crush him. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He will see the anguish of his soul. He will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, says Yahweh, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And all of this is out of the Father's good pleasure. Certainly, this speaks with clarity to the substitutionary death of Jesus for you and me. All coming about, all coming about, His death, because the Father so willed it. And that's exactly what we see in verse 11 of Mark 1. The Father speaks from heaven, heaven, indicating His perfect pleasure with the Son. He is not, notice this, The Father is not upset that the Son has condescended so low and taken on the appearance of humanity. He's not saddened by the lowly place that the King of Heaven has assumed. He's not upset at the path the Son will soon walk. He's not upset. He's not displeased that He is ruining His reputation. No, the Father is absolutely pleased with the Son. He's pleased with the work the Son is doing and will accomplish. And that's the key. Mark 10 Mark 10 is kind of the the climax of the whole gospel of Mark. And Mark 10, 45 is the centerpiece of the whole gospel. And it describes the work of the servant. Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to fulfill the role of the servant. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Father's pleasure in the Son demonstrates the joy of the Father and his determination to save a world of sinners through the sacrificial death of his only and eternally begotten Son. And what this tells us, friends, is that the Father's love for sinners like you and me is the fountainhead of all redemptive activity. In Scripture, <clears throat> excuse me, in Scripture, the Son is credited with obtaining forgiveness for sinners and justification through His life and His death and His resurrection. The Holy Spirit <clears throat> is credited with the work of empowering the Son and applying His redemptive work to His followers, even as He causes you and me to be born again. This is the work of the third, the second, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But the Father, the Father, the Father is credited with writing the entire plan of our redemption. It is from His magnificent heart that the gospel flows. He is the source of all redemptive activity. And in, his, and in this glorious moment, Jesus' baptism, he looks at the Son and affirms him. He gives him, as it were, the nod, saying, Son, press on. Do the work we agreed upon. Live a life to earn a righteousness for these sinners, and then lay your life down for them so that they can be eternally mine. Without this, it will not happen. That is... Well done, my good and faithful servant, right? That is, this is my servant. With him, with this one, I am well pleased. So the son embarks on the mission to live and die for sinners, empowered by the Holy Spirit and with the divine pleasure of the Father. All three members of the Godhead, engaged and united as they work in this triune effort to save sinners like you and me. Isn't it amazing? What a glory. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for this spectacular text. Lord, we praise you above all, though, not for this book that we love, Lord, we praise you for your love to us. It is not that we did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. This heart would still refuse thee, had thou not chosen me. And Lord, that is the, the song of each one of our hearts this morning. And we ask, Father, that you would continue to inflame our hearts to see what you've done for us and to live in joyful gratitude for this work. We praise you for the Son. We praise you for the Spirit. And Father, we praise you for your great love to us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.